Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Kevin Hart here. This basketball season, Chase Freedom Unlimited is helping me cash back on everything, even the sound system that auto-tunes the game. Curry from way downtown. Defense. Will the owner of a red sedan please visit guest services? Bet you've never heard cash back and sound like that. Cash back like a pro with Chase Freedom Unlimited. Chase, make more of what's yours. Restrictions and limitations apply. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. The Volume. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same-game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. one 877 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. I'm Jason Timp. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I hope you are all having a great start to your week. Another action-packed night in the NBA postseason. We got, effectively, a game winner from John Morant. We're going to start with that tonight. We're going to break down Suns Pelicans. We're going to get into the games that I missed from last night. So we're going to get into the Sixers and the Raptors. We have... Another series that ended tonight with the Heat and the Hawks. We'll touch on that briefly. And then, for those of you guys who are listening, at the end of the show, we're going to do another Ask Jason Anything. So, in the chat, drop any questions that you have, and we will get to them tonight at the end of the show. But let's start with the Grizz and the Wolves. Very, very interesting basketball game. Game fives in a series tied at two have always been one of my favorite playoff settings. It's the, the game that... Both teams are immensely familiar with each other. Both teams know exactly what each other want to do. And it truly comes down to, can you do what you do better than they do what they do? If you guys remember, I think it was last week, uh, we were talking about the Raptors falling down behind the Sixers 
in I think it was back when they were down 2-0. And I talked to you guys about how, you know, everyone talks about how the playoffs are about matchups, and there's a lot of truth to that. But it goes deeper than that. You know, like it's the concept of styles making fights, but it's not just the styles that make the fights, it's which style wins. Because each team has a style. We just talked about this with Jonas Valanciunas in game four of this series. He's been really bad through the first three games, played really well in game four, and it turned what had been a bad matchup for the Pelicans into a good matchup because of what he did to control his style. The foot speed was an issue with him, but he brings size to the table. So if he's dominant with his size, it undercuts anything like that. It's no different than like Conor McGregor when he was in his prime knocking everybody out. If he could make the fight quick, he had such a great knockout punch that it swung a lot of fights that otherwise might might not have gone his way. Then Nate Diaz came in and made him go from round to round and tested his stamina. And it changed the style on Conor and exposed a weakness for him. And interestingly enough, in order for him to even the score in their rematch, he had to embrace some of those long-form strategies, like kicking the shit out of his leg a million times and earning points and things like that that way to win a fight by decision, right? And it's not just about what your strength is. It's about can you inflict your strength on somebody well enough that their strength doesn't win in that specific matchup. Usually, I like to have a theme for the show. We had a couple of different themes last week, and that's going to be the theme for this show. It's going to be brought up several different times. The idea of a team actually controlling the style of the fight. And what's so interesting about the Grizz and Wolves series is when each when either team has control, they look dominant. The Grizzlies all season long have been this freakishly athletic, high-flying team that gets out in transition and gets all of this stuff in the open floor. And I told you guys all season, I was worried about them in the postseason when the game slows down in dealing with half-court scenarios because they don't have a ton of half-court creators. They have John Morant, and that's pretty much it. Desmond Baines, like basically an off-ball player, more of like a Clay Thompson archetype than he is like a CJ McCollum archetype better at creating off of an advantage than he is at creating by himself. And then the same goes for Jaron Jackson Jr. If you give him the right matchup and you give him tons of space, yeah, he can do some work in the half court, but a lot of things have to break his way. And I was concerned about them. They kind of remind me of the New York Knicks from last year. Much, much better version, to be clear. The New York Knicks were not a two seed, but there was a dynamic to what the New York Knicks did that was more effective in the regular season than it was in the postseason. And what that had to do with was they had one half-court creator, right? Julius Randle. But they were kind of like a freakishly athletic, try-hard, defense-oriented team that loved to get out in transition. Then they ran into an Atlanta Hawks team. Last year's Atlanta Hawks team was much more serious than this year's team is. We're going to talk about that later tonight. But that Atlanta Hawks team kept them in the half-court. And it turned into a chess match. And the problem was... Julius Randle was the only guy who could create his own shot, and the Atlanta defense was devoting all of their attention to Julius Randle, so he had a rough series, and the Knicks' offense completely fell apart. And a similar thing has been happening to Memphis in this series. How does a seven seed, they've won two games in this series, and in the other two, the two of the other games, they had monster late leads that they blew. So Minnesota could have very well already won this series in five. So Memphis has shown some real holes in what they do. And to me, it reminds me of that Knicks team from last year. Like I said, a better version of it. But all of a sudden, you have a Minnesota team that's trapping them in the half court often. When they get in the half court, like we've talked about, Minnesota has one of the best perimeter defense teams in the league. They're not a great backline defensive team. They're not like a rim deterrent team like a Anthony Davis under the rim or a Clint Capella, DeAndre Ayton, big vertical shot blocker under the rim. That's not their style. They are, we're going to guard you on the perimeter and keep you in front and not even let you get to the paint, let alone try to finish over everybody. And all series long, 
when Minnesota has been able to hang on to that rope and keep control of their style of play, they've been dominant. But like so many other young teams around the league, they fall apart when they get into a situation where consistency is a factor, when they have to do it possession after possession after possession. That's what you expect from young teams. It's one of the big reasons why I told you guys last week that I'm off Memphis as a title contender. They're not serious enough, consistently enough, to not get beat by a serious team down the line. Phoenix Suns, for instance, tonight, Chris Paul-led team, team that's dealt with some pain and suffering, losing in the NBA Finals after being up 2-0, they are dead serious. And they were, there was no chance in the world that they were going to come out in this game five and have a flat stretch. Memphis has had three or four extended flat stretches in this series where they don't play hard, where their defense is lazy, where they're kind of like more style and less substance. And it's gotten them into a bunch of big holes. But there were times in the series, several points, like in game three, when they blew back-to-back 15-point leads in the same game, where Memphis was able to wrest control of that, get out and transition more. I thought a super interesting part of this particular game was late-game decision-making. I told you guys back when Minnesota was going on their run during the regular season, you know, I love Anthony Edwards. We've talked a lot about him on the show. I have a ton of excitement about him in the long run. Even the shots he took in that fourth quarter, even though I disagreed with some of them from a shot selection standpoint, they were this close to going in. There's a version of tonight's story where Anthony Edwards basically executes the Memphis Grizzlies, and maybe that will be coming down the line. But he's a kid. He's young. And D'Angelo Russell is a little older, but he's not exactly your savvy, slow-down point guard. And he went rogue on one of the final possessions of the game with better players on the floor and took a crazy, terrible pull-up jump shot that he bricked. That that was my concern the entire time with this Minnesota Timberwolves team. Can Anthony Edwards and D'Angelo Russell make the right decisions down the stretch of games? Minnesota, you can tell throughout this whole series, when they are in the flow of the game, they're very confident. When they don't have to think about the one possession, but rather the 50 possessions, meaning like early portion of the game, second quarter, third quarter, when they don't stress about messing up, they look so good because D'Lo and Ant are flowing and they're being aggressive. Carl Anthony Towns is playing with the crowd and he's being aggressive. But then they get down to the handful of possessions and suddenly it's not about your points per possession. It's not about how effective your offense is usually. It's about this possession and this decision I have to make. And, you know, there was an interesting moment. I can't even remember if it was end of the third quarter or beginning fourth. But John Morant took off and absolutely destroyed Malik Beasley with a poster dunk. And it was kind of funny because John Morant has been trying that exact same dunk like dozens of times since he got in the league and nearly gotten himself killed a half dozen times with awful falls because, trust me, they're just super, super dangerous plays when you get bodies underneath you when you're flying that high. But he finally got one. But I don't know if you guys noticed, but almost immediately after that play, the entire demeanor of John Morant changed. I think before that dunk, he only had 10 points in the game through three quarters. Minnesota was really holding them in check in the half court. I believe he had nine or 10 assists at that point. So it's not like he was ineffective, but He was limited in a lot of different ways. And starting with that dunk, John Morant made a conscious effort and deliberate decision to attack the rim. If you guys remember, very next possession, he damn near posterized two more Minnesota Timberwolves. And then the possession right after that, aggressively to the rim, finished left hand on the left side of the rim. He was consistently getting to the paint down the stretch of that game. And This is the thing. It's not like Minnesota's defense got worse. It was an intentional effort. It's exhausting. It takes understanding angles and being more picky about when you drive. But John Morant knew that even though it was going to be a very difficult job, he was going to put his head down and go to the rim. On the other end of the floor, D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards, and Carl Towns became jump shooters. And in their defense, they were making them through most of the game. They had a 14-point lead, I think, 
It was either 13 or 14, right around the middle point of the fourth quarter. So it was working, but again, it's not about the 50 possessions. It's about the 10 or 15 right at the end of the game. And for those 10 or 15 possessions at the end of the game, John Morant was being aggressive and getting to the basket. And Anthony Edwards and D'Angelo Russell and Carl Towns were settling for jump shots. Again, Anthony Edwards had two pull-up threes in that fourth quarter that were this close to going in. But they weren't great shots. One of them, he had John Morant on him, right on the left wing. John Morant has been a horrific perimeter defender in this series. There's no way in the world that he would have been able to keep Anthony Edwards from putting his head down and going to the rim. Ant settled, as we call it, in basketball. Now, I think that word gets used too often because I think people have an unrealistic expectation of how exhausting it is to go to the rim. But in a small sample size, when you absolutely need baskets, you got to take what you can control. You can't control whether or not a jump shot goes in. I remember arguing with Laker fans in the 2020 finals. Game five, up three games to one. LeBron drives to the basket, kicks out to Danny Green at the top of the key. Danny Green is wide open, shot to win the trophy. And all the Laker fans were slandering him because he missed it. But here's the thing. The best shooters in the league, when they're wide open, they're right around 50%. So it's just as likely that he'll miss as he'll make. Anthony Edwards works really hard on his pull-up jump shooting game, and he's been shooting really, really well on pull-up jump shots of late. We've talked about it a lot on this show. But on your best day, you might make half of them. And that's the issue. You're putting the fate of the game in chance instead of something that is far more reliable. John Morant took one jump shot in that fourth quarter, or one three-pointer in that fourth quarter, top of the key, wide open on an offensive rebound by Brandon Clark. Brandon Clark was unbelievably dominant in that fourth quarter offensive rebounding. He had three, I believe, all contested in traffic, all unbelievably massive. Little details about the game of basketball that kind of go underneath the surface. You think about a battle between Jaw and, and D'Lo and Ant, and don't get me wrong, that's the core decision makers of the series, and they're obviously the biggest guys swinging the impact, but on the big play where John Morant tied the game, or when he made the shot that gave them a one-point lead, what happened was, is in transition, the Grizzlies ran like a three-man action at the top of the key, like two ball, two ball screens for Jaw, and on the play, uh, there was a switch, and I believe it was, it was Jaden McDaniels ended up on Brandon Clark. And Jaden McDaniels is big and tall and athletic, but Brandon Clark is bigger and stronger and more athletic. And so he just pinned Jaden underneath the basket. They got to stop. They forced a miss. But Brandon Clark just jumped up over everybody and grabbed it and swung it out to John Morant for the big shot. Again, the types, the quality of shots that Memphis was getting in that fourth quarter was... We are not leaving this to chance. We're putting our head down. We're going to the rim. We're winning every physical altercation. These are things we can control. We are not going to leave this game to chance. The Timberwolves left the game to chance by taking contested jump shots. Like I said, there's a version of that story where if they make them, you win. It looks great. There's a highlight reel. That's great. But there's a version of that story where you miss them, and that's, that ended up being what actually happens. Yeah, that's that's another concept we're going to get to a little bit later in the show. The idea of controlling what you can control. We're going to get to that when we talk about the Sun series. You know, I talk a lot about the concept of why you can't afford to trick off games in a playoff series. It's really hard to beat a, time, a team four times out of seven. And I would argue that Minnesota has played well enough to beat Memphis four times already out of five tries. They're probably going to lose this series. I would imagine that there's a Better than 50% chance that Minnesota wins game six and sends this to game seven. But even if Minnesota does win game six, the numbers tell us that the home team almost always wins game seven. Almost every single time. The, uh, I can't remember exactly what the percentage is, but it's more than three-fourths of the time. So chances are you're going to lose this series now. And you played well enough to win four of the five games. But you lost focus in three pivotal stretches or uh, late first half in game three, between the third and fourth quarter of game four, uh, of, uh, also of game three in the same game, and then tonight in, the, in the, the late fourth quarter section of the game. Three times where you lost focus and you cost you a series. 
And now, if Minnesota does win this series in seven games, they will have had to effectively beat Memphis six times out of seven tries. Those are the little details that win and lose playoff series. That's why I'm always lower on young teams. And that's why I value perimeter decision-making so much. Having a ball handler, not a big, a ball handler, that can set you up on offense from the perimeter and, and make intelligent basketball decisions, not just for himself, but for everybody on the team. And I thought that was, was the hallmark of Jaw's game tonight, which is his first big playoff moment. Obviously, he's played well in the playoffs before, played well enough to eliminate the Golden State Warriors last year in the play-in tournament, played well enough to steal a game from the Jazz in the first round. But this was his first bona fide real playoff moment. Game five, team with expectations, series tied at two, down big, adversity in front of your home crowd. Palms get sweaty. Everyone starts to feel tight. And Ja settled down, threw away any chance, didn't settle for bad jump shots, put his head down, and went to the rim. And as a result, he swung potentially a whole playoff series. Because if Memphis wins, I think you could make a realistic case that Minnesota played better in this series. And so that's a huge moment for Ja. Looking forward for Memphis, I still am concerned about them. Like I said, they're not serious enough. Their half-court offense concerns me. And then Ja's defense has been a real problem over the course of this series. Kind of reminds me of Malik Monk, where like he's got this freak athleticism and a decent set of physical tools. Good long arms. He's not short by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, he's shorter than a wing, but he's not short by any stretch of the imagination. But he's very thin. And basketball's a game of angles. And physicality in the playoffs wins. And you can't have Patrick freaking Beverly consistently attacking you. And they attack Jaw with other switches as well. But the problem is, is if they get even an inch of an angle on Jaw, they just blow through his shoulder because he's not strong enough to hold his ground. So I think for his entire career, unless he bulks up a little bit, which who knows how these guys, these guys you know, are going to transition as they age. Like Jaw could end up looking like Russell Westbrook one day, be built like a truck. You just don't know. But if he stays thin like this, that kind of changes the way you have to construct the team. You've got to construct the team in a way that covers for his defensive shortcomings. A lot more length, a lot more athleticism, so on and so forth. But yeah, I, I would predict Minnesota to win game six, but I think Memphis is going to end up winning the series either in six or in seven. Moving on to the Suns and the Pelicans. So, like I said, you have to control what you can control. Phoenix is up Shit's Creek in a lot of different areas of the series, right? Devin Booker's out. That's a that's a easily their most important player. I think you could have made the case last year that Chris Paul was the most important player because Devin played better this season. But with his shot creation, it puts a lot on everybody else. And what you saw in game four of this series was some of the things that are out of your control not go well. Chris Paul didn't play well. Herb Jones guarded him extremely well. You know, Mikael Bridges and DeAndre Ayton didn't play as well. A lot of things didn't go right. But you can control the defensive end of the floor. You can control your decision-making. I thought it was really, really interesting that in this big game, in a big environment like this, that Phoenix was able to get as many stops as they did, that Phoenix limited their turnovers the way they did. Those are the things you can control. And there's been a couple of weird dynamics, right? Like the Pelicans have utterly demolished Phoenix on the offensive glass in this series. I haven't seen the numbers updated from tonight, but I think they're averaging right around 15 offensive rebounds per game. But a lot of that's matchup oriented. New Orleans is sending a ton of guys to the glass at the expense of their transition defense. There's a bunch of reasons why they're getting as many offensive rebounds as they are, but that's extra possessions. That's 15 additional possessions per game. So you have to make up for that. When you factor in losing Devin Booker and having so much offensive scoring load on Chris Paul, you can't afford to have a bad defensive night. You can't afford to have a bunch of turnovers. And that's why I love having a grown-ass man, a grown adult who's been in these settings so many times as the guy that you can lean on in these settings. Chris Paul was built for this type of setting. That's why I decided, even after the Devin Booker injury, that I predicted the Suns would win the game and win the series. It'll be another story in the next round. 
Adding Luca to the picture, that's a whole other animal. Luca is going to have a hell of a time getting eight and out on the perimeter, working against Chris Paul in isolation. I'm really curious to see how he fares against some of the longer wings for Phoenix. That's going to be a super, super interesting matchup if they get to that point. But Chris Paul and his IQ and his experience, I believe was going to be enough to control the series. And it was. Even in a, even in a predicament like Devin Booker going down. Obviously, they got a much they got a much better night out of Mikhail Bridges. They got a bu- much better night out of DeAndre Ayton. I talked a lot with you guys about how important it was to have those two guys carry the scoring load that Devin Booker, with him being out, takes out of the picture. One other interesting note on this game: New Orleans' reliance on isolation. So, if you look at the uh, um, if you look at the box score after the game. Phoenix has 28 assists to New Orleans is 14. And a big part of that is just the way they play. You know, New Orleans kind of plays a similar style to Brooklyn in the sense that they rely on their two primary shot creators, Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum, to attack matchups all over the floor. The problem is, is just like what happened with KD and Kyrie, if you run into a really good defensive team, like, it's going to turn into a tough shot-making contest. And what's more reliable? Phoenix bruising you on the inside, 46 points in the paint. Phoenix executing in pick and roll, getting high-quality shots. Or Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum taking tough isolation jump shots on every single possession. It's not a surprise that they didn't play particularly well as a result. But that's all I had on that particular game. We're going to bring Carson on and we're going to get into some of the other series and go over some questions that he might have. And hey guys, just remember, if you're listening and you're in the chat, we're doing a mailbag at the end. So any questions that you have, drop them in there and we'll get to them at the end of the show. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, That grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Warm weather brings many outdoor activities. Happy hours after work, weekend hikes, pool parties, and family barbecues. With all that time spent in the sun, we're often not thinking about what it's doing to our hair. Those rays can seriously affect your scalp and hair, making right now the perfect time to start taking Nutrafol to help keep your hair healthy this summer. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, and faster-growing hair with less shedding. Thinning hair is different for men and women, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth doesn't cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your biology, life stage, and lifestyle factors. Physician formulated with drug-free ingredients, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting key root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole body health. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day and you'll see results in three to six months. Get results you can run your fingers through. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N U T. R-A-F-O-L dot com, promo code HOOPS, that's H-O-O-P-S. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code HOOPS. Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, 
Come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Something I've always been a big believer in. When you try to take projects on yourself, you usually don't know what you're doing. You usually end up making mistakes, and it can be a big headache. And so not only can a professional from Angie get the job done more efficiently, but they also are people that you can support within your community as local businesses. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job is done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects easy. Consider Angie your hub for all your home improvement needs. They can help you find the best price for your project by comparing quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that will tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. And the app is free and easy to use. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. The playoffs are here and you can make every game feel like game seven on FanDuel Sportsbook, an official partner of the NBA. FanDuel is hooking you up with free bets throughout the playoffs. It doesn't matter if you're a new customer or already have an account. Just be sure to check out the app for exclusive weekly same-game parlay promos. FanDuel has so many ways to play, and best of all, when you win, you'll get paid faster than a fast break. New to FanDuel? Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code Jason T. Once again, that's promo code Jason T. All right, well, Jason, we're going to play a game here called What Have We Learned? As you said, we're going to run down some key points from a few series, and you're going to tell me what your takeaways are from that. So we're going to start with the Miami Heat, who finished off the Hawks today in five games. What do you think we've learned from their performance and moving on pretty convincingly in round one? So I thought this was the least interesting series in the first round, and I'm glad it's over. (laughs) Uh, Atlanta. Yeah to me was, like I said many times on the show over the course of the last week, they were the sore thumb of this playoff field. They were the one team that seemed to be clearly a level below everyone else that was playing among the other 15 teams. You know, I have three big takeaways that I learned from this series. One, there's an issue with Trey Young. There there were so many people that jumped on Luka early on that they're kind of turned into this like counter Trey movement. And then last year in the playoffs, because he won two playoff series, there became this additional Trey Young movement like, oh, well, Luka's never won a playoff series. Trey's already won two. And anybody who actually watched the Hawks last year knows that they beat a Knicks team that had no half-court creation. They beat a Philly team that was literally combusting on the floor in front of our eyes to the point where they had to reconstruct after the season with the Ben Simmons situation. And Atlanta had an awesome defense. Truth of the matter was, is Trey Young shot below 42% from the field last year in the playoffs, and he shot 31% from three. And he wasn't terrible. He had moments, obviously, but there were a lot of things that broke his way in that ser- in that run. The reality with Trey Young is in the playoff environment, when the physicality is allowed to go to another level, when guys are allowed to grab, when they're allowed to hold slim, slight players struggle. It's just a fact. We have so much evidence of this throughout NBA history. In this year's postseason run, obviously only five games, he averaged 15.4 points on 32% from the field and 18% from three. I love Trey Young's game in in some areas. Great passer, willing passer. He's kind of like Luka. Like, actively looking for his shot, but also has the ability to make the high-level reads. The difference is, is I think Trey is a little bit more of a gunner. But the biggest difference between the two of them and the reason why Luka is so much better and the reason why it's silly to ever put them in a conversation together is Luka can lean on you, man. In in all of these matchups, Luka is going to pick on a small guy and he's going to bully him. He's going to pick on a big guy and use his, uh, his moves to get him uh, to get a step and he's going to pin him on his backside and he has the strength to hold them off. I know this has been something that I've leaned on a lot in my basketball analysis over the course of the last few years, but it's something I believe very strongly in. Like these playoff series are physical fistfights and size does matter. There are guys that have overcome it, uh, have been able to overcome it over the course of the years. Kevin Durant, even though he's thin, what happened with Boston? That's an outlier. Usually does well. Steph Curry, six three, kind of slight. 
but he's so good in almost every single area of the game and he's good enough defensively that it doesn't matter as much. But I've always leaned on guys that are more physical. Trey Young, good player. He's solid. I'm not sure that his ceiling could possibly be much higher than it already is right now because what is there that Trey could add to his game at this point with his physical limitations? And then the last two things really quick, Miami's offense. I told you guys all season I was worried about them in the half court. Atlanta was the 26th ranked defense in the regular season, and Miami only scored 115.9 points per 100 possessions in this series, which would rank seventh among playoff teams. Really, really curious to see what their offense looks like in the next round, regardless of whether or not they play Toronto or play Philly. They're going to play a significantly better defensive team. And then last but not least, Jimmy Butler's health. We talked about this right before the end of the regular season. This dude is like practically playing every other night now in the regular season. He'll play one or two games in a row and then he needs a rest. And then here he is missing a playoff game for a sore knee. I love Jimmy Butler's game. He's a bona fide playoff player. A lot of the things that I just talked about with physicality and decision-making are why he's such a dominant playoff player. But if the dude can't stay on the court, like that's just one other massive red flag for the Miami Heat. So... Let me ask you a little bit more about Trey first, because I think when you are looking at one-man offensive engines, he stands certainly among the league's best, right? In terms of raw output, he led the league in total points and assists this year, was very efficient in doing so, led the Hawks' offense to be the second most efficient in basketball without a really high-level second creator on that team. So how much of what we saw in this series do you think is a product of actual things about his game that are not sustainable in the playoffs versus issues with the Hawks roster construction and the fact that they didn't have that second guy who could really punish the heat for dedicating overwhelming attention to Trey night in and night out. Because obviously it's inexcusable from him. I mean, it was, I would say, kind of a shockingly bad series. But which of those factors do you think is more important and was more impactful there? Well, the conversation we're having about Trey is kind of similar to the one we had about Jokic. Like, the conversation I'm having is more about his ranking in the league. I 100% am with you. There are roster shortcomings here. Like, you need, if you're going to have a guy like Trey Young that has to operate with a live dribble from the perimeter or out of pick and roll, you need to have a bigger wing that you can throw the ball to to try to generate physical offense. A guy that can attack size mismatches. You know, Danilo Gallinari just never really amounted to that. You know, Bogdanovich was just way too inconsistent. and He's not big enough to be that kind of rim-pressuring guy anyway. So, like, kind of like, again, the archetype of Boyan Bogdanovich with Utah is kind of what I'm talking about. Like, someone like that that can take a different element to their offensive attack. And then, again, you have to have a defense like you did last year. Again, unsung hero of last year's playoff team. And Atlanta wasn't a dominant playoff team last year in the regular season by any stretch of the imagination, but they did hit a level in the postseason that allowed them to eke out a lot of games. Defense, again, it's like it's something that you can count on, and you'll you'll be shocked at how many times in a playoff series or a playoff game where you'll see a team that will shoot poorly, have a lot of turnovers, a bunch of guys have bad nights, but you end up winning somehow. And it's just because you played so well on defense that you forced them to not play well as well. So, like, they're... Let me be clear. Trey can be the best player on a championship team. You just, he's far enough down the list that so many things above him have to be perfect. Like, has to be right. with surrounded by tons of defensive talent, has to have a co star that can pressure the rim and is more physical. A lot of things would have to be perfect around him in order for that to work out. Going back to the Heat for a second, do you feel significantly different about? them now compared to before the series and where do you feel like they are in the eastern hierarchy of contenders right now i would think they're going to be the worst team left in the second round uh they i would give them an outside chance to beat whoever comes out of the sixers raptors series because both of those teams have gaping holes like just like you've seen from Toronto in this series, there's a massive chasm between what they look like when they're bad and what they look like when they're good. You know, and, and the same thing goes with the Sixers. Like when they when they're humming, they were whooping Toronto's ass and they've looked unrecognizable in the last two games. So like Miami will be capable of beating either of those teams, but 
they're also capable of losing to either of those teams for the same reasons we discussed earlier. Nothing really has changed for me other than the fact that, you know, they, they're playing Duncan Robinson less. That was to be expected because he's having issues on the defensive end. I don't think Kyle Lowry is as important as everyone else thinks he is just at this point in his career because he's a little bit older. But the health is a concern too. Like I would say that I was already low on them before the playoffs, but I'm even lower now. Like I'd give them a 0% chance to get out of the East. Wow. Yeah, I think that that's pretty reasonable because of a lot of the offensive limitations that you've talked about and the inconsistency there. I will say they are wildly impressive defensively, and I do think that, you know, that gives them some sort of chance, but I I think that you're probably right. They would be probably that last team into the next round. The Their defense, it kind of reminds me of Dallas. They mm. have great defensive players on the floor. Bam Adebayo, yeah. unbelievable defensive player. You know, P.J. Tucker, I think, is underrated because so many people yeah. are focused on his limitations offensively. Jimmy Butler mm -hmm. is obviously incredible. They have great defensive players, but so much of what they do involves convincing average to below average defensive players to to work their ass off, which I uh -huh. which is a credit to the Heat organization, to be clear. But they're going to run into a team, uh, probably the Celtics in the conference finals, that are going to have excellent defensive personnel to match right. the dedication and the effort. Another thing, too, from a matchup standpoint, one of the things that, and we're going to talk about this later here in just a couple minutes, but the Raptors are starting to expose Joel Embiid with foot speed, and we'll talk more about mm -hmm. that in a minute. Against this particular matchup with Miami, I think they're going to be able to get away with dropping Joel Embiid all series. And if they mm -hmm. can keep Joel Embiid at drop all series, that completely shuts off the paint, turns Miami into only a jump shooting team. So there's some matchup yeah. stuff too that I think is, is going to end up getting in their way. Not a bad defensive team, but I think there's a massive chasm between their defensive ceiling and like Boston's defensive ceiling, for instance. Sure. Yeah. I think the Dallas comparison is interesting. I feel like the personnel is more impressive, but I agree with you. I mean, Boston right now is in a class of their own on that end. So... You mentioned some of the stuff that we've seen out of Philly slump it a bit in their last couple games. Went up 3-0 on the Raptors. Now we're looking at 3-2. We're headed back to Toronto. What do you feel like you've learned from what we've seen in the last couple games and what's been going on in that series, Jason? This is such a classic series for understanding why it's so important not to overreact to one game or to two games. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's the wrinkle of them having fallen down 3-0 and that being something that's never been done before. But in Game 3, Toronto played really well. And honestly, it came down to particularly Siakam and Van Vliet really struggling offensively to the point where they couldn't close the deal in that game. Way too much was on you know, Gary Trent Jr. to make plays or OG Ananobi to make plays. But the truth is, is like if you were to watch the first two games of that series and then watched Game 4 and 5... They they are massively unrecognizable between the two the two stretches of games, and it's because in a playoff series so much can change. We talked about this at the beginning. I said the theme of the show was styles make fights, but that the it's about the style that wins the fight. Well, coming into this series, we talked at length about how Joel Embiid and James Harden were the best two players in the series, probably that that uh, Philly had more talent that they should win. But they had some specific flaws. One, their transition defense. Two, Joel Embiid's ability to handle double teams. J uh, three, James Harden and his ability to score in single coverage. And then four, Joel Embiid and James Harden in a driving kick system. Those were my four big gaping holes that I saw in this Philly roster. So what sucks is those advantages, Toronto was completely geared and equipped to inflict on Philly. They had all the length and athleticism to cause James Harden problems and to cause Embiid problems in double teams. All the length and athleticism to get up in floor and transition, to get into driving kick scenarios where they can take advantage of their lack of foot speed. They had all of that. They had the coach to do it too, but they just did it. In the first two games of the series, the Raptors allowed 135.8 points per 100 possessions. In the first two games of the series, the Sixers ran them off the floor in transition. So the same thing that they should have been doing to Philly happened to them. So even though Toronto had advantages, 
Philly was playing so well and Toronto was playing so poorly that none of that materialized and they got their ass kicked. In the three games since, the Sixers are being held to 102 points per, uh, per 100 possessions. Literally 33 points fewer, more than 33 fewer points per 100 possessions compared to the first two games of the series. Toronto's just playing better, man. Huge part of it, I mean, Fred Van Vliet is their best perimeter initiator. Fred Van Vliet is a very good defensive player at the guard position, but he's small. And there are there's all these different ways that we look at defense. And, you know, in isolation defense, Van Vliet's ability to get up underneath you and slide his feet and be physical is valuable. But covering ground in rotation, there's a ceiling there for Van Vliet. He's small. He can't cover as much ground. So they take Van Vliet out of the lineup. All of a sudden, Gary Trent Jr., who is 6'5 without shoes on, Gary Trent Jr. was the smallest player they played. Everybody else other than him is massive, long, and athletic. So suddenly, Toronto looks a lot more imposing defensively just because of the lineups that they're going with. There was a really, really, really interesting sequence late fourth quarter, or excuse me, uh, middle third quarter of game five. Of game, uh, yeah, of game five. So you guys have probably seen this clip. It was going around social media like crazy. And I specifically have been on this train all season long. So of course I have to bring it up tonight. I talked to you guys about how I love Joel, Embiid ga- Joel Embiid's game and I love Nikola Jokic's game, but I could never include them in the list of best players in the league because as dominant as they are at their position, they have foot speed limitations that you can target specifically in transition, and in five-out scenarios. Well, one of the things that Toronto has figured out so far in this series as it's progressed is Joel Embiid can't guard their quick forwards on the perimeter. Pretty average players. So there was a sequence in the third quarter where on five consecutive possessions, in isolation, not like, oh, he's attacking a closeout, Not like, oh, Joel Embiid was helping on someone else and had to step over and was at a disadvantage. No, staring Joel Embiid in the eye and driving to the basket on him. First play, Precious Achua faces up at the foul line, does a jab step, Joel Embiid buckles, drives to the basket, draws a foul. Very next play, OG Ananobi kind of like fakes like he's going to use a screen and roll. Joel Embiid has dropped way off of him like 10 feet. OG hits the gas and punches the gap, blows right by Embiid for a dunk. Next possession, kind of semi-transition. Man-on-man, there's no help. It's just Joel Embiid on an island with Precious Achua. Precious Achua just does a through-the-legs dribble and just blows by Embiid. No chance. Wide-open layup. Next possession, same exact thing. Pascal Siakam on the right wing just drives by right by Joel Embiid for a layup. And then finally, on the fifth consecutive possession, out of the left corner, Precious Achua drives on Embiid. Embiid actually makes him use a counter move this time. But Precious just up fakes and goes up and under and makes a layup on the left side of the rim. Five consecutive possessions where they scored on Joel Embiid in isolation situations because their players are faster. And that again is Precious Achua, OG Ananobi, and Pascal Siakam. All very good basketball players. None of them are dominant offensive engines. And Joel Embiid can't guard them on the perimeter. It's just a limitation in their individual games. Jokic and Embiid. Not a criticism of them as like they're not top 10 players or they don't deserve to win MVP or any of those things. Just why I personally am always going to lean towards a Giannis or a LeBron or a KD is because if you put them in that type of setting, a game that goes up and down or a game that's stuck in the half court. A game that's five out or a game that's more traditional with you know a lot of pick and roll and guys underneath the basket with less, less spacing. They can thrive in all of those environments. With jo- Jokic and Embiid, if the style exits their comfort zone, they have shortcomings. And you're seeing Toronto attack that. Another big part here in the series, we talked about how there was no way in the world that... James Harden, or that the the Raptors could not have one of the top two or three players in the series and win. They would need to. And through the first two games, I'd argue Embiid was the best player, Maxie was the second best player, and Harden was the third best player before we got to a single Raptor. 
Well, Maxi's cooled off last three games, 14 points on 39% from the field, 18% from three. Harden looks like the same guy he has for the last three months, like a totally fine secondary creator who can make passes out of pick and roll and stuff, but he's not a great isolation player anymore. He's not doing well in spot-up situations, and he's really bad defensively, so there's a lot of limitations there. Here's the reality of the situation. There's two games left. Embiid, uh, Embiid is the best player in the series. The Sixers have more talent, and they have one of those games at home. So the Sixers should win. But there's a ton of pressure on them now. They have to start by going up to Toronto. If you lose that game in Toronto, which Toronto, it's like probably like a coin flip, right? If Toronto wins game six, now you're coming home, but there's a boatload of pressure. And we've seen how James Harden reacts in those situations. I'm still seeing Joel Embiid rely too much on foul grifting. One last note on this series. One of the things that I noticed when I watched the tape this morning, Joel Embiid is starting to be relegated a little bit to the perimeter on offense. He's having some success in situations where he's off ball and he happens to catch around the rim and he's still as dominant as ever there. It's a bucket or a foul every time, basically. But the post-ups with Embiid, Toronto's figured him out. They're getting the ball out of his hand. He's not getting good stuff out of that anymore. Down the stretch of game five, Embiid was kind of floating around the perimeter, getting rid of the basketball, doing a lot more dribble handoffs, taking a lot of tougher jump shots. It's an interesting dynamic. You're starting to see, you know, early in the series, guys like Precious Achua, Kem Birch, and OG and uh, OG Ananobi and Pascal. I mean, all of them have seen time on Embiid. But each of them at the beginning of the series were super tentative. They didn't want to commit fouls. They weren't being physical. They weren't testing his handle. They're kind of feeling things out. Watch the way they're guarding Embiid now. They're testing his handle. They're reaching. They're being aggressive. They're getting up underneath him. They're starting to have some success there. So, like, if there was ever a time that... Earlier, I was just wishing it would happen. Now, this is a real potential outcome. Toronto has a game at home, a chance to win, and then Game 7 in Philly, anything can happen. This thing is still up in the air, although I am still picking Philly because they are the better team. So obviously, I mean, the 3-0 comeback would be completely unprecedented historically and wildly amusing for a number of reasons, largely that you would have two guys who have just become notorious for playoff underperformance and collapses with Doc Rivers and Harden being at the forefront of it. You say that Philly is still the favorite, but it's possible for Toronto to do it. What do you think is the most important thing that needs to happen if Toronto is actually going to pull it off? And if you had to estimate a probability of the Raptors actually doing it and winning this series, what range would you put that in? I put it at about 33%, so a little a little less than a coin flip. The biggest thing is going to be the offensive end. Yeah, it's a legit... Oh, Carson, they have a legit chance to win this series. It's... I think the key is going to be the offensive end. Pascal Siakam's been playing well. Uh, OG Ananobi's been playing well, hitting shots. Precious Achua. This dude, in Miami, he was kind of just like another undersized forward who tried really hard. Who, and I say undersized, like had more of the size of a wing, but didn't have the skill, so he was playing kind of as a forward and just kind of like a do-everything utility player. He is showing flashes of offensive potential on the perimeter that are really, really exciting. And he's young. I think he's only 22, if I remember correctly. You correct me if I'm wrong there, Carson. But like, Precious looks amazing. There was a play in the uh, first half. It was like, like late second quarter where Joel Embiid was helping on a, a play where OG Ananobi was isolating against James Harden. And OG Ananobi threw a skip pass to Precious Achua on, in the corner. And Precious had already made a couple of jump shots in the game. So Embiid had to close out hard. And Precious did like an up fake and ripped through the baseline and threw down a dunk right before the shot clock buzzer. And I'm like, that looks like a straight up slasher wing. That doesn't look like an unskilled forward. Like he's showing some flashes Mm -hmm. there. So the key is going to be, can Toronto score enough to win this series. And so it's going to come down to guys like Precious playing well, OG and Pascal obviously is the, is their best individual shot creator with uh with Van Vliet out. So I think it's going to come down to them on the offensive end. Well, the name of the game here is what have we learned and there's very few people who are better to learn from I think when it comes to talking about basketball than our colleague here at the Volume Draymond Green. 
He recently gave yes, his sir. thoughts on his pod on the net struggles against the Celtics. So, Jason, let's take a listen to what he had to say. I just thought in that series, Boston made it a point that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving will not beat us. We know those two guys can beat us. They're not going to beat us. And what it looked to me as, there was no one to get those two guys in position to score the ball where they like to score the ball from. And so you end up seeing a ton of turnovers. Uh, you know, I saw the numbers with like KD uh, and his turnovers versus Jason Tatum and, and all the different things. But the reality is Brooklyn struggled to get stops the entire series. You struggle to get stops. You come down against a set defense every single time you come down the court. I don't care how good of an offensive team you are or what offensive players you got on your team. Playing against a set defense every time is nearly impossible. So, Jason, obviously you've talked a lot about how brilliant the Celtics defense has been and explored the Nets' struggles offensively, but what are your thoughts on that? First of all, uh, I have so much respect for Draymond as a basketball mind, and it really, really makes me feel good to hear him say some of the similar things that I have said on yeah. the show over the years. It makes me feel like we got to be doing something right over here. How often do we talk about set defenses and the difference between attacking in transition or semi-transition versus in the half court and why it's so important to get stops and all that stuff? You know, a couple of things. He's hit the nail on the head. They absolutely went to take away KD and Kyrie. Um, I think it's a little bit more difficult than it looks to try to get them in spots where they can succeed because that was a big part of the series was fighting them off of position with physicality at different spots on the mm -hmm. floor. And even when they tried to run actions where, you know, like there was an inbounds play in game three, a baseline out of bounds play where like, where like Katie and Kyrie and Nick Claxton were all kind of in like a triangle and like Katie and Kyrie set a cross screen and then Nick Claxton like faked setting a screen and then cut back and Tatum and Brown and Grant Williams, I think, were the three defenders involved. And they're literally hugging all three nets on the play. And when Jalen Brown and Grant Williams do the switch on the KD Kyrie screen, they just like shoved the player, like Kyrie and KD, to each other and then ta and like grabbed him again. And then on the play, when Nick Claxton goes to fake back to the basket, Hayden like grabs him again and he reaches in and gets a steal on the inbounds pa pass and runs the other way. And I'm just like, well, here you go. Here you're trying to run an action and it just doesn't work because Boston's just beating the shit out of you off the ball. It's just kind of the nature of the way they play. And I think uh I think it's just it's just the important it's the important reality of the way that playoff basketball gets so much tougher. I, it's really important that he was talking about attacking against a set defense because the the Celtics offense really, really got going in the second halves of this series. In the first half, first quarter, second quarter, uh, Brooklyn was able to get a lot of stops. It's a big part of why they had early leads in every game. But as the game progressed, they had a lot of problems. I wanted to share some very specific uh, of some kind of in the detail stats from this series because this series was interesting on a couple of different levels. It was, it was an example of, you know, we talked about styles making fights, but these two teams have very similar styles. Like, Brooklyn is a team that likes to get out and transition a lot. So is Boston. Brooklyn is a team that likes to switch a lot. So is Boston. Brooklyn is a team that likes to attack mismatches on the other end of the floor. So is Boston. But Boston kind of is like the better version of them. They're kind of the evolved version of them. Kind of like, like I've been talking about a lot on the show. They're what the future of basketball looks like on so many different levels. And, and you saw that show up in the numbers. So Obviously, the Nets relied a lot on isolation. They isolated on about 14% of their possessions in this series. The interesting thing is they only scored 0 0.83 points per possession in isolation with KD and Kyrie on most of those possessions. The Celtics in isolation possessions averaged 1.19 points per 100 possession or points per possession, which is fascinating because I said all uh, towards the end of the regular season and coming into the series, I said the biggest difference between these two dynamics is Tatum gets to attack better matchups. He gets to go after Seth Curry. He gets to go after Patty Mills. He gets to go after bigger, slower defenders or smaller, uh, skinnier defenders. He had all of these different options, and Katie and Kyrie were just picking from an all-you-can-eat buffet of all defense-level guys. So, of course, it was going to be a huge pain in the butt. So, to give you an idea, the Celtics only laid on 86 percent of their possessions compared to almost 14 percent for the Nets yet the Celtics only scored three fewer points in isolation possessions 
than the Nets did. They scored on 51.4% of their ISOs, and the Nets only scored on 36.8% of their ISOs. I talked about how they wear uh, they wore Brooklyn down defensively in the second halves. Did you know that the Celtics in this series scored 19 field goals per game in the restricted area compared to only 12 for Brooklyn? Bullying them inside. We talked a lot about Jalen Brown exploiting size mismatches and getting all the way to the rim. Them on the offensive glass. Al Horford was active on the offensive glass in there. So was Marcus Smart. They just they won all of these little areas of the game that were so important to the way Brooklyn played. Boston just came in and did them better. There were 10 minutes of clutch time in this series. So remember, NBA.com defines clutch time as five or fewer minutes remaining, score within five points. In 10 minutes of clutch time, Boston held Brooklyn. Again, Kyrie and KD, two of the best closers in basketball. But for those of you guys who have listened to the show over the course of the last few years, I always say closing is very complicated. It's not just about isolation scoring. It's about perimeter decision-making. It's not about one possession. It's about the last five to ten possessions. It's about defense. There's so many different things in closing. The Celtics... The Nets had the two best closers on the floor in terms of guys who can create their own shot. They averaged just 58.8 points per 100 possessions in 10 minutes of of clutch possessions. So Boston utterly stifled Brooklyn in crunch time. As a result, in those 10 minutes, Boston outscored Brooklyn by 15 points. And then lastly, you know, to Draymond's point, when Boston... When Boston didn't score, when Brooklyn got a stop and they were able to get out in transition, they scored 1.31 points per one, uh, per transition possession. That's a great number. So when they got out in transition, they were scoring very, very easily. But then when they get stuck in the, when they got stuck in the half court, that was when they got killed. It was just it was a it was a classic case of Brooklyn running into like the serious grown up version of themselves. You know, Brooklyn was so much better than all of the detractors wanted to act like they were in this series. But Boston, you know, because like Brooklyn's not a dumpster fire. They just had a lot of drama. They had the Ben Simmons drama. They had the Kyrie Irving drama. They have some old washed up guys on the roster. But there are some real serious basketball players on the team. But Boston is what Brooklyn would look like if it was well run. You know, stars that are dedicated to the craft, that are not interested in the extracurriculars, you know, uh, a willingness to be coached, checking ego at the door, commitment to defense, signing players that are for the betterment of the team rather than personalities or resumes, things along those lines. You know, Boston is the grown-up professional version of Brooklyn, and it was cool to see them beat Brooklyn at their own game. So Draymond talks about sort of some of the issues with maybe a lack of that table setting presence who can get you know those great scores going in their spots you highlighted a bunch of the offensive issues that this that the nets face in that matchup and you know i think the lack of paint production and paint offense stands out there so just given all of those issues that we saw is there a specific personnel adjustment that you look at like one type of player who you think boy the nets are really missing that guy who they could also even conceivably get because obviously they are pretty tied up cap-wise. But is there a certain spot that you look at there? I agree with Draymond from the standpoint of like a playmaker would work great. Mm -hmm. The issue is, is like, it's such a rare breed. Like, yeah, KD is already as good of a playmaker as the vast majority of the better playmakers in the league. There's just that group of four guys, you know, the Chris Pauls, the Lukas, the Jokic's, and the LeBrons that are like on another level above them. And that's why I Mm -hmm. value those guys so much. There's so few of them. Like, is there one player who's close to that grouping? Like, I mean, guys like guys like Trey Young and James Harden are good passers, but there's obviously a huge chasm between what they can do and those guys. And so I don't think they can attain that type of player. So what I would target in a in a potential Kyrie Irving trade, I talked about we talked about this a little bit last night actually. Like the idea of building a Boston type of uh, of of concept with KD at the helm. So try to flip Kyrie for you know Kyrie's going to be overpaid on that contract. So try to flip him for other overpaid wings, guys that are six six to six eight that are willing to work on the defensive end, aren't anywhere near as good offensively as Kyrie, but neither is Jalen Brown. 
Neither is, you know, uh, Marcus Smart or these guys that are playing for Boston. They're just, they're building off of their defense. Like Boston, Boston is scoring 24 points in transition per game in this playoff run, which leads all the teams in the playoffs. So they're getting easy opportunities off of their stops, which is making guys like Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, guys that are good offensive players, but they're not great offensive players, but they're having great offensive moments because of the openings that are created by their defense on the offensive end. So I would try to flip Kyrie for that archetype of player, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, that is all we have for tonight. I sincerely appreciate your support as always. We will be back tomorrow after the final game of the night, which I believe is Nuggets Warriors. So come hang out after the final buzzer of Nuggets Warriors. As always, we appreciate your support, and we will see you then. volume Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere like at your pregame barbecue while you prep your meats that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch garage and the car inside and without the right home and auto insurance coverage the cost to repair this could eat up your savings so bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Hey, it's Kevin Hart. In this basketball season, Chase Freedom Unlimited is helping me cash back all my game tickets. Plus, tickets for 23 of my biggest fans to cheer me on while I enjoy the game. Find your I appreciate the support, people. Eat that pretzel. This will never get old. Use more napkins. Okay, this is starting to get old. Say the tagline. Cash back like a pro with Chase Freedom Unlimited. Chase. Make more of what's yours. Restrictions and limitations apply. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. Zen nicotine pouches deliver nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Which means Zen pairs well with you, your personality, your schedule, and your spontaneity. Zen fits easily into your bag, pocket, and into your life because it's smoke-free, hands-free, and hassle-free. So the only person who will know you have a Zen pouch in is you. Visit Zen.com or head to your local convenience store today to find your Zen. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical.